Hi, James. Hello there. How art thou? Hi, Vincent. Hi. How are we all doing today? Well, I just got back from a house that stood by itself, holding darkness within. Walls stood upright. Bricks met neatly. Floors were firm. Silence lay steadily. And whatever walked there, walked alone. Until I started podcasting there. (laughs) I'm okay. Good. I have a question for you, which is kind of, again, feeding into what we might talk about later on. What is the most interesting horror sequel for you guys? Oh, that's an interesting one. How do you define interesting? Like the one that, you know, takes whatever came before and does something fun with it or like, yeah, one that isn't what you expect. Because most horror sequels are either like more, 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 bigger, Mm. bigger, bigger, occasionally badder or like the exact same film again, which isn't like Friday the 13th films. Most sequels are the same again, but on a boat going to New York. Oh, I see. My top sequel to a horror film would probably be the one that stops being horror um, largely because I would say Aliens um, because Alien is pretty much a perfect horror film and Aliens is pretty much a perfect action film but maybe that doesn't count because it's not really doing horror anymore Um, I mean I can think ah there's something I'm thinking of Um, oh I think it was quite recent Um, I don't know Um, I may have to come back to it the title of it's totally slipped my mind might be something medical um, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll go back to you on that one. I can't tell if this is a bit or if you genuinely forgotten. I think oh. it's a bit. I think I think it's an allusion to uh, one of the films that the director will be talking about in the second half of this uh, episode, I believe. And there I go pointing <laughs> it out. Well done. Yeah. Oh well, you only I... spoil the suspense now. Oh, sorry. Except I think no, my except pick... no one's actually said to what it is, so the suspense remains. Guess what, audience? <laughs> it's still to come. I think my pick is Psycho 2. As much as I love Halloween 3 Season of the Witch, because that's nothing like Halloween film, but Psycho 2 is like uh, 30 years after Psycho, and it's just Norman Bates trying to have a normal life, and everyone's like messing with him, and it's really entertaining. And uh, uh, yeah, that's my like interesting sequel that I love. Fair enough. Um, if I'm go quantifying interesting with also quality then I think I'd go for Wes Craven's New Nightmare for the way it this franchise just goes from, right, we're out of ideas. We've done the same thing with Fre- Freddy Krueger for five sequels. Now what? Let's get meta. Let's just make it so Heather Langenkamp returns as herself, having played her the character of Nancy that you watched back in the first film. And it's just very, very interesting um, yeah, very good, I think. Probably the third, yeah, the third best Elm Street film, which is a low bar considering this franchise. <laughs> but if we're saying interesting, never mind about whether it's good or not, Hellraiser Bloodline, which goes... Which one is that of the innumerable ones? Oh, yeah. It's the sequel where they go to 18th century France, the modern day, and space all in the same film like there's a lot of issue behind the scenes issues (laughs) it was a whole epic meant to be really long cut down to 90 minutes and the director 
Alan Smithied it, so got his name taken off. And it's, considering all that, it's a miracle that it has some kind of structure to it. But fascinating, at the very least. I remember hearing that discussed. I'm not going to add it to my list. Yeah. <laughs> I remember hearing that discussed on the evolution of horror. It's not one I've seen, but when I was listening to the discussion about it, I was like, wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> and your description of it, I think, yeah, sounds about right. Like, you're what now? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> it's fascinating, to say the least. <laughs> Uh, if you hadn't noticed, we're talking about horror because this is Invasion of the Body People. Yay! And yay! And we've decided we're going to tweak it slightly so that um, we're going to change up some of the order, add in some new things, because we've been doing this for a few months and we thought we'd have fun with it. Uh, as ever, I'm Russell, that's James and Vincent, and we'll be giving you news, reviews, random views, recommendations, all around horror and wider genre films because you know what we've brought up aliens already so we're not just tied to horror we love sci-fi and every other kind of genre film uh and to kick things off james is going to give us some news aren't you james i suppose i am hmm now what is there in the news today i suppose there's this little thing i don't know if anyone's heard of fright fest but they unveiled the first 25 films which are going to be ha- taking place at this year's august event Yay! Horror is back! Woo! Woo! And they've unlit... They've given the first details for this year's event today. I believe it was at 10am this morning they unveiled it, saying which films are going to be playing on the main screen. An interesting selection, which will be going through our favourite, our most interesting sounding ones in a bit. But I want to highlight that this isn't just the end of it. That they're, what they're going to do is they're going to unveil more information over the next few weeks. This will include the lineup for the Discovery screens and the ever awesome First Blood strands. They'll be telling you what guests are coming, when passes and tickets will go on sale, but they've also revealed there's going to be a digital event and it'll be taking place Wednesday the 1st to Sunday the 5th of September, which is a very good way to ensure everybody whether you can attend or unable to everybody gets a chance to have a bit of the fun and experience some of the some of the lineup they have going on now we've all had a look at the at the lineup of the films and does anybody would anybody like to offer their thoughts about what what the lineup how the lineup's looking and what there is going on glancing through them um, there's, as one expects from Fright Fest, um, you sort of read the descriptions like um, uh, A, with, and some of which sound like uh, sounds very interesting, some sound completely mad, and others sound well, I'm sure that'll be okay, but it doesn't really sound for me. Um, for me, a few that you know particularly stood out um, was actually the very first one, the film um, the festival opens with the European premiere of Demonic um, which, as I, which according to the fairly brief description, is a unique voyage into a world terrifyingly similar to our own, um, a crossover between forward-thinking science fiction and high-tech horror. I'm particularly excited about that one because the director is Neil Blomkamp, who, if you cast your minds back about, what, yes, 12 years, 
um, really um, electrified audiences with the fantastic District 9 um, and has yet to recapture that. He, um, as well, we were talking about Alien earlier. At one point, Blomkamp was tied to um, an Alien sequel, but that never materialised. And what did materialise from him um, were <clears throat> Elysium and Chappie. Um, neither of which matched quite the uh, strength of District 9, but, you know, but have continued a consistent interest in uh, sort of the violations and alterations of the human body. So, I mean, if you look on the website for Frightfest, there is a still from Demonic, um, which appears to be of a chap who's been strung up and covered in satanic symbols. Yay! So that's the first one that's really stood out to me. Russell, uh, what's uh, something that you're particularly looking forward to that's caught your eye? Yeah, so I, I, what I love about Fright Fest is that it's it's super diverse. It has all these different kind of films. Some of them aren't horror. Like I've watched some really good thrillers or comedies at Fright Fest, and they come from across the globe. So I guess the first one that stands out for me is this New Zealand... I don't even know if it's a thriller. It, <clears throat> I don't even know if it's a horror. It looks close to a thriller called... Uh, coming home in the dark and it just i had a sneaky look at the trailers there's a couple of trailers out there most of these films haven't got trailers they've just got a couple of stills but this one has a trailer and it's about this uh school teacher so the imdb synopsis is that it's a school teacher is forced to confront a brutal act from his past when a pair of ruthless drifters take him and his family on a nightmare road trip and that for me sounds deliciously full of potential i enjoy a good hellish road trip movie i like it when strangers come into people's lives and are kind of there to right or wrong from the past one of my favorite horrors ever is the hitcher and there's a lot of that in there that there's this kind of supernatural presence almost that kind of just fucked shit up and if it comes close to that it'll be a lot of fun and uh yes yeah, so the last time I, there was a physical fright fest i remember films like come to daddy films like uh a, a good woman is hard to find and films like that really standing out. And they, they're not straight horrors, they're thrillers. But by being a bit more diverse, Fright Fest gives us some really interesting stuff that's out there that might otherwise not be picked up or shown in a place. So of the ones that I'm most interested in, the first one is Coming Home in the Dark, which looks like a lot of nasty fun. Uh, James, what's your first one? Well... I had a look at the lineup, and the one which stood out most to me was Prisoners of the Ghostland. Now, the main thing which made, jumped out to, at me was that it starred Nicolas Cage. Yes, that's a risky prospect, but over the past few years, he's been having quite the renaissance. He's really been reminding audiences of his talents, and from what I hear about this film, it's more of the same. Because this time, he's teamed up with acclaimed director Sion Sono. Now, I've only seen once of Sono's work, and that's 2015's Tag. And if that's any indication, this film is going to be one hell of a ride. Now, the synopsis, bear with me. Set in the treacherous samurai town, a ruthless bank robber named Hero is sprung from jail to locate the missing granddaughter of a wealthy warlord. He'll gain his freedom in exchange for the runaway. And to ensure, ensure some success, he's strapped into a leather suit that will self-destruct within five days. So it's a race against the clock with apparently <laughs> stylish skirmishes, which includes gunslingers, ghosts, samurais and cults. Now, if that doesn't sound like a 
unbelievably fun ride. I don't know what does. It does sound like an unbelievably fun ride. It also sounds like this was going to be a se- another sequel to Escape from New York. <laughs> if we got if we got Cage Pliskin here. <laughs> All he needs is an eye patch, and uh, yeah. fuck you for the precedent. Yep, I am down with that. Vincent, do you have another one to share with the group? Yeah, um, I am also very much looking forward to crabs. Now, some people probably think, what, is this about uh, some sort of sexually transmitted disease? And I suppose it could be, but based on the admittedly very brief information that's provided, um, this is going to be a film about giant crabs, um, which I am here for because I love me some creature features. Um, The first, uh, when cinemas reopened this year, the first thing I saw was Godzilla vs. Kong, which was eh. Um, so maybe I can see some great big crabs, um, uh, you know, and uh, that'll pincer me into some kind of um, shell-shocked state. I'll get my coat. <laughs> wow. Sorry, that joke went a bit sideways. I'm going to jump in here and give my next recommendations before any more crab-based humour gets uh, hoisted upon Sorry, us. Sorry, um, don't get crabby. Big... God damn it. Uh, my next pick is I love a good film about witches and about the occult and set back in the day. And there's a film set in the 19th century, I assume America, but it could be yeah, anywhere, called The Last Thing Mary Saw, which is about a young woman who's under investigation for a death and she tells you what happens. And it sounds fascinating. It also has Rory Culkin, who, uh, for horror fans, is in. Um, God, what's what's the heavy lords metal of film chaos. about? He's in law. He's one of the lords of chaos, and uh, yeah, I have a certain degree of interest in Culkin, the Culkin family, because one of them is in Succession, which is one of the best TV shows out there, and so this looks like it could be a nice, spooky little affair if it is classy and fun and manages to retain an atmosphere. I'm very much game for a film like this. I don't think there's any crabs in this one, but maybe there is. Maybe the whole, maybe all these films will be connected by, I don't know, a crab-like presence. Ah, the crabverse. Uh, the crabverse. We could have that. Uh, yeah, so I'm excited for the last thing Mary saw. As far as I know, my next film doesn't have any crabs in it, but can never tell. Might be a sneaking one at the end. It's called Broadcast Signal Intrusion. And if one of the things I learned over 2020 from films such as Possessor and Host is that if a film has effects with Dan Mar- from Dan Martin in it, then it's a very good thing. And this has that glowing recommendation in there already, so I'm hooked. But the plot is very interesting. It's set in the 90s, and you have this video archivist who, un- who unearths a series of sinister pirate broadcasts. And he becomes obsessed with uncovering the dark conspiracy which lurks behind them. And I think that sounds like an interesting film. And I look forward to giving it a go. We'll see if there's crabs though. Yeah, and I believe this played at South by Southwest. And the critical response to it was really strong. It got a really good response. And yeah, Dan Martin's name on any film is worth your time. 
I saw it in the earth and the uh, I call them the foot effects <laughs> are particularly great by him. <laughs> yeah, he just he's like uh, an incredible uh, presence in any film is Dan Martin and his practical effects. Totally, yeah. I, I saw it in the earth as well, and uh, I found it to be quite a feat. <laughs> oh, uh, my third um, pick for Fright Fest is um, from Fright Fest favourite Dominic Brunt, um, who has, uh, which features Fright Fest, another Fright Fest favourite, Michael Smiley, who I remember at Fright Fest uh, 2019 actually being there in person and greeting all us sick bastards. But he sounded Irish, not uh, which I didn't. Um, <laughs> so this new film from Brunt and featuring Smiley is Evie a sinister take on the Selkie myth. Now, I really like, I should say also co-directed with Jamie Lundy, um, I've always found the myth of the Selkie very interesting, where um, a person, well, generally would be be a woman who could turn into a seal and um, would go back and forth between um, living a life on the land and living one in the sea. There was a wonderful, um, touching family animation film some years ago called Song of the Sea, which featured um, Selkies. I have a feeling Evie will be very different, and I am here for sinister Selkies. <laughs> yeah, Michael Smiley is always a ringing endorsement in any Fright Fest film. He's like the crown prince of Fright Fest. I remember the first film I ever saw at Fright Fest was Kill List, and he's in that, and I remember him being in the audience, and... Yeah, I mean, it was a great one to watch first year Fright Fest. Cause, yeah, Funnily lot. enough, my first Fright Fest film also had Michael Smiley in it. It was um, Come to Daddy. and I'll... Same for me. Ah. And I wonder if this next film will also have a reference to Michael Heseltine in it. <laughs> <laughs> we can but hope. Uh, my final pick is a film called The Maid, which is a Thai horror that sound... that looks particularly ghosty and spooky. It is about a teenage maid who comes to work for a family and there was a mysterious death of the last maid and it seems that she's uh, haunting the house and it looks very... It looks like a throwback to a time when horror was all long-haired, uh, grey women making noises. But in a, in a good way. I mean, in a perfectly good way. I'm very interested in what the maid will be like. And again, as I said with my first pick, I do like that... Uh, Fright Fest at their best pulls in films from everywhere, all around the world. You'll get all these different uh, films from, and and horror is so different everywhere. So it's really interesting to go there and see what everyone's doing. So yeah, I'm very in, into this as a as a film. That sounds very good. Um, my last pick is a film called Beyond the Infinite Two Minutes. And this already comes with a ringing endorsement because it was acclaimed by director Shinichiro Ueda, I really hope I haven't butchered that, who gave a, who was the director of a past Fright Fest favourite, One Cut of the Dead. And he called <laughs> it a worthy successor to his film because this film was shot with virtually no cuts. So 70 minutes, no cuts. And what it is, it's a time travel suspense comedy where a cafe owner is just relaxing and he looks at the TV and what does he see on there? An image of himself. And he on the TV is speaking from two minutes in the future. And then him, his staff, their regular customers, they find themselves trapped in some kind of time prison, which 
sounds very interesting and I really look forward to seeing how well it's done because I remember at last Fright Fest there was a film they said was shot in one take and watching it seemed anything but but <laughs> this one does have some very good responses already and I'm really looking forward to checking this one out not to name names but is that Fright Fest one the one with the neon masks or like masks that that's the up? one yes I have seen that yeah yes it was it was not one take no not at all <laughs> Um, we will be coming back to uh, one takes later on. And what I like about your pick, James, is that there are these films that play at Fright Fest and probably wouldn't have been got much notice if they hadn't played at Fright Fest. And One Cut of the Dead is exactly that film. It's that I don't think we'd all love One Cut of the Dead. I don't think many of us would have seen it had it not played at Fright Fest and got like, I don't know, four additional screenings because it just kept selling out. It just kept uh, selling out each screening. And I mean, One Cut of the Dead is incredible. It's one of the best. Uh, zombie films, if you can call it a zombie film, zombie films the last like 10 years. It's it's outstanding. So, yeah, I'm very interested in this uh, time loop film. OK, so that was our discussion of what Fright Fest has to offer. And I look forward to seeing what else they're going to have on the discovery screens. If that's just what their introductory choices are, then they must have something special for their discovery screenings because there always tends to be something. Yeah, agreed. It looks like they could have some great picks this year. And I'm interested to see which ones play physically and also digitally. So hopefully there'll be some good crossover. Oh, sweetheart. Do you know what this place is? So that's our news pick for the month. And we'll come back to Fright Fest, I'm sure, in a, in a few weeks because... It is the biggest event on the uh, cinema landscape for us horror fans. But one thing we're going to introduce into episodes from now on is a kind of a deep dive, a longer chat about a horror film that we've all watched. And we thought we'd, p we'd pick the one that had got, I guess, the most praise and interest of the last 12 months, which is St. Maud, which is, has recently come to Amazon Prime. We've all seen it, so we thought we would have a nice chat about St. Maud. Uh, for those who haven't seen St. Maud, and we will avoid too many spoilers here we won't go into the the finale because uh if you haven't seen it you should probably go off and watch it or heck even pause us and go off and watch it because it's available to everyone and it really should be watched uh but saint maud is about a um a, a pious nurse who is um shall we say has an unhealthy relationship with uh, aspects of the bible and starts seeing uh strange things and believes she needs to save the soul of a dying patient she's working with. Uh, and I won't say much more because where this plot goes is really interesting. It's Rose Glass's debut. It came out last year. Rose Glass wrote and directed this and it has a stonkingly good performance from Moffad Clark, who has been in many great things, but is for me before this, I knew her because she's in David Copperfield as both his mum and his uh, betrothed uh, wife-to-be. And she is great in that as well. So uh, I thought I'd start by asking you two what you thought of this film. So, uh, James, what do you think of St Maud? I remember catching it when it came to cinemas, and I thought it was an exceptional film, and it's wonderful that it's out there for people to see now. 
because it had such a rocky ride what with covid and everything yeah we should say that this film uh if not premiered had a big screening at the last physical fright fest in glasgow it was a it was featured there and and it, that was the last physical festival that happened i believe in the uk so it was it was built up to be released last spring and then it managed to get out in the window we had between lockdown one and lockdown two or yeah in that window it got a release and made some money i think it was moderately successful but yeah it's had a really uh, it's one of the many films that's had an interesting journey to this point uh vincent are you equally a fan or oh absolutely how yeah. do you feel about i um uh, I only saw Saint Maud for the first time relatively recently, and it's one of those. Th- and I'd heard about all the positive things about it. I think, um, yeah, Mark Kermode just called it, made it his film of the year. So there's high praise. So the problem Wait, with that, that is you go in with um, particularly high expectations, and they can be unreasonable. But I can, but I, I would say that Saint Maud met those expectations. I thought it was a beautifully composed and brilliantly ambiguous um, tale by turns it was moving by turns it was chilling by others it was shocking and it was a really um, involving and affecting um, horror of mind and of body and of faith mm. so you use the word horror there. horror there do you think this is a straight horror film do you think this is entirely a horror film uh i do yes absolutely um the debate over what does and doesn't qualify as horror will probably never be definite be definitively concluded i came up with a definition that works for me which is i think that horror is about the is about victimhood it is about presenting the experience of a victim and that is what i felt watching saint maud here is someone who is afflicted by her own mind and as a result she afflicts her own body and it can all be traced back to faith um her type of faith it's interesting that you described um uh you described uh, maud russell as having a strange relationship with the bible because it seemed to me my my response anyway is that maud's faith was something more personally defined um and not necessarily tied to established scripture um I mean, yeah, not least because Maud isn't quoting scripture a lot. She's not saying in Revelations, whatever, um, that this happens. Um, her faith seems like something that she has come to, which is where we go into the sense of where's the uh, of, of the strange kind of mind aspect of it. It is a tale of someone who is very, very troubled, and that I think is quite horrific. Plus, there are a few moments in it that had me going. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. But, um... Yeah, it does have a smattering of um, good jump scares. In oh, yeah. I am slightly agnostic to it because I guess I went in hoping for a straight horror and it's it's more complicated than that. And it's at its most interesting when it's not being a horror for me in the same way that for me a film like Hereditary is most interesting when it's not being a horror film. It's that the aspects that I'm drawn to of Saint Maud are the, I guess, close to a drama. And part of that is because of who's the lead performance. So Moffat Clark is the lead and she gives a really quite phenomenal performance. Uh, James, what do you thought of uh, Moffat Clark in this? I thought she was absolutely exceptional. I mean, as you see, you see in the film, what it's not so much told. Um, you're not led by the hand as to what led Maud 
to become as you see her in the film and it's you get the breadcrumbs and enough so you can put it all together and i think with it all really comes together because morphe clark is does such a wonderful job selling it you believe that she's been on this journey and who she is now she's fully into that person and at the same time you also believe that through her you believe that question that's going on as is what she's saying real or is it the result of her own mind crumbling beneath everything that's going on and for me that's what makes it a horror film is because what's more scary than the possibility your own mind is withering away yeah i totally agree um james it's i oh, actually i agree with both of you oddly i mean it seemed to me like very much like a horror film because it really explores the idea of you know your mind betraying you and then ugh, some pretty nasty body horror in there as well um, but at the same time it's got this really um sort of melancholic very human aspect to um maud's background and i think the relationship that she forms with her charge um, Amanda is also very touching. So I absolutely get where you're coming from, Russell. But I have a question for you two. Um, for me, something that is makes this film something special is that I think it's very ambiguous. It does not, without giving away the ending, I would say I don't think that the ending is clear. Um, I don't think the film tells you what was actually going on. Was that your experience or did you find it clearer? So I think for the most part it is ambiguous. I think how it ends, you could interpret that as a definitive uh, finger on the scale of one way or the other. Uh, the I'll be honest, the ending floored me and it was perhaps the bit of the film that floored me. I found most of it quite... Not reserved isn't the right, isn't the right um, word, but... Uh, St. Maud takes its time and it, it's it's such a character study that the bit that really startled me and I guess frightened me was right at the end, was that very final moment. And it is such a powerful final moment. Uh, but I think because of what it's showing us, it feels like it's the director's almost coming down on the side. But then I can see people who wouldn't see it that way because for so much of it, it is... Uh, subject to what the viewer is interpreting and what they're seeing. I'd have to agree with that, that when it comes to the film as a whole, I do feel it works both ways, depending on your interpretation. And I think it does that really well. But when it comes to the very end, then I think it falls down onto one camp as to what, where it, what's actually happening. And that's certainly my interpretation of it. But at the same time, I can see the other side and how they would, they how it would still work for them and of that mindset. And that's a very interesting one, yeah. Do you think at all this, this film is slightly missold in how it was marketed at the time? Because I, I at the time it felt like it was marketed as the Halloween horror because it came out in October and it felt like it was being geared towards you should go there and you'll have like a date night experience of horror. And I have the IMDB up in front of me. There's things like that. It promises endless nightmares and it's a horror masterpiece. And it, it's an unholy terror is another quote they pulled out. And 
while I think that there are aspects that are, that are a masterpiece and we, I'm not sure it would give me endless nightmares and I'm not sure that I think this is an unholy terror. I think it's subtler and, and more interested in its lead character and spending time in her world without it being an out and out, uh, blood curdling horror. And that's probably a strength of it, but I wondered if it, you thought it might be missold at all, because there is a, probably a school of horror fan that really doesn't like this film. Mm, I can, I think describe, yeah, I wouldn't consider it a Halloween, uh, date screamathon. No, it's a lot more sort of, um, it's a film that's disturbing and unsettling more than, um, well, it's not a thrill ride, put it that way. And um, I think that Unholy Terror is just sort of, is effectively buying into, hey, there's a religious aspect to this. Well, yes, there is. And I think <laughs> that's what that <laughs> quote is probably referring to. But having said that, at the same time, I think it's the more sort of um, lasting and special, if you like, Ugh. I'm not going to say elevated horror, but it's the kind, it has the sort of qualities that the films that do get described as elevated horror also have. So I think it fits into a similar category of sort of low key, in t- but still intense psychological plus more horror films like, say, um, The Babadook um, or Relic, a couple of recent ones, I think. It's that kind of. Um, it's it's not a horror film that you necessarily are going to forget anytime soon. I think, I th- or hereditary actually mm-hmm. to link to what you were saying. I think um, pull quotes, which they often use for posters and trailers, can often be more detrimental to the percep- an audience perception of a film than the than intended. Because while one critic can say something's an ungodly nightmare or a mass horrific masterpiece or something that speaks to their own experiences their own um interpretation of what horror is then general public might see that pull quote on a poster and think an entirely different thing and then come out of it underwhelmed i mean funny you mentioned hereditary um vincent because that's what comes to mind exactly with that especially the quote saying it's the the new exorcist or this generation's one something mark kermode especially took issue with and i think in terms of saint maud the ending has really stuck with me ever since i saw it and in ways that a lot of horror films haven't so for me i'd say it is pretty horrific in all the right ways i think what it is is a remarkable calling card for its director i think that it's one of the several really great uh indie horrors we've got from directors over the years and it marks rose glass this talent that while i thought that the film was somewhat overhyped that's what i say i didn't enjoy it it's just it didn't quite give me what i was looking for and i also watched this quite close to possessor and and I kind of took Possessor to heart and wanted that to be the horror. Everyone was like, this is the horror of the year. When everyone was like, this is a pretty good horror of the year. I suppose that's, that's, I suppose that's some of what was my response when watching St. Maud. But yeah, I think that as a work from a director, writer who has only made shorts beforehand, and this is their big debut, it's, it's a remarkable one, even if it's 
and I will happily watch their next thing. I would happily watch whatever Rose Glass produces next. Totally agree. Same. Uh, so yeah, so if you want to go off and watch Saint Maud, you can find it on Amazon Prime. And I, as the least in love of, it, of the group, still think you should go watch it because there's a remarkable central performance and there's some really interesting themes in there. And then when you've done that, go off and listen to the Evolution of Horror's discussion on it because uh, it's a really great cap to their mind and body series that they did. And it brings up a lot of good points. When you pray, do you get a response? Oh, it's like he's physically in me. It's how he guides me. My little saviour. And so next up, Vincent's going to take us through one of, personally, one of my favourite horror directors right now. He's going to go through uh, Mike Flanagan, and we're going to chat about how interesting a director he is. So... Vincent, what do you think of Mike? Well, first I'll say strap yourselves in, folks, because it's time to travel into tightly defined space that sometimes flips through 90 degrees. Mike Flanagan is to contemporary horror what Denis Villeneuve is to contemporary science fiction. And he's also more. Now, in case you need that clarified, folks, Denis Villeneuve, who um, gave us Blade Runner 2049 and Arrival, and hopefully this year we'll, we will get to see Dune. Yes, indeed. <laughs> Big fingers crossed on that one. So why am I drawing a comparison between Villeneuve and Flanagan? Well, to answer this question, we need to go back through the past 60 years of horror cinema, so where we will find stylistic tendencies. It is terribly reductive and simplistic to talk about directors as the centre of film meaning, but it's easy for us, so we do it. I'm going to treat, controversially, 1960 and Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho as the birth of modern horror cinema. From Psycho, we can trace a stylistic line through Hitchcock's The Birds to George A. Romero's Dead Saga, uh, the work of David Cronenberg and John Carpenter, and forays into the genre by Roman Polanski, Ridley Scott and Stanley Kubrick, all of whom deliver quite measured, deliberate paces to their horror films. As was the style at the time, steady cam, long takes, tracking shots. Now, the 1980s saw the injection of a more dynamic style, what film scholar David Bordwell refers to as intensified continuity. This is a filmmaking style influenced by MTV music videos, where we see a decrease in shot length um, and more rapid editing. So it's a matter of let's speed things up. And what we get here is a distorted cinematic fabric, a distorted fabric that was also reflected in the special effects of the time. It's been described as plastic reality with new developments in latex and practical effects. So filmmakers like Sean Cunningham, Wes Craven, Clive Barker, um, and the creating of something more, um, as I say, distorted. Now carry on into the 90s, where you've got continued slashers, and you have the addition of knowing humour and witty dialogue with slick and glossy style. The noughties saw Eli Roth and James Wan bringing in new metal stylistics and sometimes going berserk with the camera. I only watched uh, Saw not long ago for the first time and I thought, bloody hell, this is all over the place. <laughs> but the past decade has seen a more measured approach return with films like 
it follows, The Babadook, Get Out, and pretty much everything by Mike Flanagan. Therefore, Flanagan is a return to, for lack of a better term, old school stylistics. Longer takes and a more measured pacing are used to create suspense and dread. Now, we mentioned long takes earlier um, in relation to a forthcoming film at um, Fright Fest, uh, one take time travel suspense comedy beyond the infinite two minutes. Long take, the long take is a tricky cinematic technique. Um, it's just in, pra in practical terms, it's very difficult to orchestrate. Um, when a filmmaker does a long take, it's often quite showy. And it is something I think Denis Villeneuve has certainly done. You can look at a lot of his work. And although they're not necessarily long, you know, showy long takes, it is a longer general pace, um, <clears throat> stretch of, of single shots. But in the case of Flanagan, what he uses these for, um, he uses these to very much create suspense and dread, tracking shots that uh, move through spaces several times, revealing aspects as we go, and sometimes changing them. Now, and this serves, I think, very much to unsettle the audience. So let me ask you two, can you think of any instances in Flanagan's work, or anywhere else for that matter, where something unexpected appeared in the background and unnerved you or at least caught your attention? I don't mean something jumping out, I don't mean a sudden um, change in the, in the score, but you know, the camera was looking one way, it panned across or tracked to another part of the scene and then it came back and there was something different and he went, Ugh. Any examples? Russell? Well, it's actually one... Uh, the, I have never made it all the way through the House of... Ha house of the, haunt the Haunting of Hill House? Haunting of Hill House. I've never made it through the Haunting of Hill House for this particular reason and also because it was rather a lot of tension for however long it was. He was very effective at placing stuff in the background that you just sort of catch a glimpse of. And they will do very long scenes and the camera will move and you'll just catch a glimpse of something unpleasant. And it <laughs> really upset me. I also watched this week his Ouija sequel. And there's a moment in that that uh, it's a very long take of a girl in the mirror. And then there's a presence that's there. And it, you suddenly see this presence and it's very, it's probably the scariest bit of the film uh, or, or leads into a really scary bit. So, yes, those are probably my two examples. And if I remember Oculus had some of that flavour to it, but I haven't watched Oculus since it was at the cinema. And that was before I knew who Flanagan was. I just watched it because it was a Friday Night Horror. But yeah, I remember that. But definitely in those two examples, there are moments where that happens. <laughs> Uh, one that comes to mind is in John Carpenter's classic Halloween, where Laurie's on the phone with one of her friends. Um, the friend is babysitting little Lindsay Duncan, I believe. And while she's on the phone, she's moving about. And in the background, you see the face of Michael Myers just standing, watching her in the window. And the score changes subtly to indicate, oh, shit, he's right there. Like she know she is unaware of the murderous danger that's literally watching her while she's just going about the most banal banal stuff, and that one is just excellent. Yeah, absolutely, and it's um, I think significant that you reference back to 
um, Halloween because we, what we see, I think, in Flanagan's work, it's kind of continuing that kind of, um, or returning to that sort of tradition. And yeah, the moments that you were describing, Russell, I totally agree. Um, now, Flanagan's are probably most famous and overt use of the long take is in The Haunting of Hill House. The episode Two Storms, which is the seventh episode, is uh, conducted almost entirely in long takes. Um, just carry on and on and on to the point where you're thinking, are we ever going to cut? Um, this travels around the space and goes around the different characters and it moves between past and present, which is something Flanagan does throughout the series as past and present. Uh, well, as we move through time and we move through space. And in this respect, it's all happening in the space of a single shot. Um, panning, tracking shots, the space that surrounds the character, and we return there is someone or something else in the background. Um, in the more recent series, The Haunting of Bly Manor, much the same. Um, and in that it's often a matter of, okay, that person wasn't there a moment ago, but sometimes it's not even a sudden jump, it's not even a sudden appearance. We've just been moving through the space, it's like, was there a person standing there? I'm not really sure. Um, so yeah, we find that throughout The Haunting of Hill House and The Haunting of Bly Manor. Now, what's important about this is that in both in these cases and throughout Flanagan's work, it's about seeing the other aspect of Flanagan's work I want to discuss, which is his very strong sense of space, the fear frontier. <laughs> yeah. Scare track. <clears throat> That could be maybe I could hey maybe I'll write a book about Mike Flanagan one day and I'll call it Space Trek. <laughs> Copyrighted. Now the standard narrative structure um, is equilibrium, loss of equilibrium, re-establishment of equilibrium. Try saying that three times fast. And horror narratives typically do follow this, but sometimes they don't give us equilibrium at the conclusion, and these can be the most horrifying because the sad, grim, or just um, terrifying ending they provide is a disavowal of order and the associated comfort. Now it's fair to say most Flanagan films do end sort of happily, or at least with a resolution. But along the way Flanagan presents us with space which he then distorts to create unease. He's great at setting things in small spaces that should be reliable but really aren't. Um, now earlier uh, Russell, you mentioned um, films involving uh, like uh, a sudden arrival of a sudden intervention of a stranger, which really messes things up, like The Hitcher, or of course The Strangers. Well, Flanagan's done that too with Hush, um, a film where a woman is subjected to a home invasion. Now, this is seriously unsettling, partly because we get a, this senseless sadism in it, but also because it very much draws you into that character's position. You mentioned Oculus. Here's a family home where reflections and reality become untrustworthy. Gerald's game is remarkable because it's mostly set in a single room, and this single room turns into a nightmare space of memories, hallucinations, and yeesh, some of the most grisly body horror I have seen. Um, <clears throat> yeah. <laughs> Um, the, now, the aforementioned spaces in The Haunting of Hill House, as I said, connect to each other across time and space as well. Again, this is not; these things are being destabilised. Now, earlier, Russell asked about favourite horror sequels. 
and in what I think could be Flanagan's highest profile work to date, we have a sequel to The Shining, Doctor Sleep. Now, with this story, we have a space that is established by Stephen King and immortalised by Stanley Kubrick. What Flanagan does is recreate this and then violently distort it, which is what makes Doctor Sleep a really strong sequel, because it's Flanagan's own. He doesn't try to emulate Kubrick or be super faithful to King. And goodness knows, if you want to talk long takes, <laughs> Stanley Kubrick's your guy. Um, but what Flanagan does is he takes, he gives us the familiar and then he messes with us. Because um, so he's messing with space. He also messes with time through the flashbacks, memories and the pervasive effects of grief and trauma, split time narratives framing stories and flashbacks, sometimes within flashbacks. And this all makes perfect sense, and why I say he is, you know, sort of a very um, dominant figure in contemporary horror. Because what is haunting but the presence of the past in the present? Uh, the idea of we are haunted by memories, we are haunted by trauma. And whether we've got Oculus, the haunting of Hill House and Bly Manor, Before I Wake, Gerald's Game, Doctor Sleep, that's what we've got. It's these. Um, it's an inability to get away from something and that rem remains haunting us. Um, visually, Flanagan, another trademark um, shot of Flanagan are tilt shots, where the camera literally tilts through 90 degrees. Or we at least get shots of characters at that angle or from that perspective, so again, space is distorted. And I mentioned um, earlier the seriously grisly body horror in Gerald's game. Flanagan's not shy about visceral violence. The um, haunting, I don't know, Russell, you said you've not got through much of the haunting of Hill House. Um, how many episodes did you get? Just the first one? I think I got two. two okay. I think I got to the second one and there was something in the basement and I, yeah. <laughs> and that was enough. <laughs> yeah, I was like, yeah, I was like uh, if it's going to do this for another five or six episodes, I'll just at some point grow a backbone and watch this <laughs> well yeah be careful with backbones in that show because yeesh um and uh, but to go to back to dr sleep in that they, we actually have a child being pulled apart alive uh, that's pretty gruesome and what this does is he's emphasizing what is most frightening the spaces made uncanny by our own unreliable minds and our bodies letting us down as they get ripped apart in dr sleep gerald's game Oculus. Now it's also worth noting that from an industrial perspective Flanagan is very much of the current time. As he moves between cinema features and streaming series he embraces the long-form narrative because Hill House and Bly Manor are like, ten, are like movies in 10 episodes and I very much look forward to his future work Midnight Mass and The Midnight Club. Thus in summary I would say that Mike Flanagan is a horror maestro of the current moment. He uses established horror tropes like memory, grief, family and the uncanny, classic haunting tropes with a measured and deliberate style, and modern facilities like digital effects and long-form streaming series. His work is nuanced and inhabited, is melancholic and tragic, and at times it is fucking terrifying. He's doing a great job, and he needs to be watched. Oh, and most of his work features his wife, Kate Siegel, which is really cute. <laughs> Question then, guys. 
What's your favourite Mike Flanagan property? I'll go first because I want to be the one to praise it. It is Doctor Sleep. I am constantly a bit blown away by Doctor Sleep. I only saw this because people who had seen it on told me on Twitter that it was good. I didn't really want any of the marketing for it. And it was... Uh, the theatrical, theatrical cut is remarkable. It's two and a half hours long. It's this uh, deliberately paced exploration of what comes next in The Shining. And then there's a director's cut, which is also uh, half an hour longer, even slower, even more time, even more material to dig into. And it's fascinating. And as you said, it's not it's not King, it's not Kubik, it's Flanagan. He manages to take these two... Uh, opposing forces because the king shining is not cubic shining and vice versa and somehow bring them together and i also find it a strangely comforting watch i've watched dr sleep i think three or four times now and it gets more and more comforting for me and that's not to say there aren't horrific moments in dr sleep as you say there is a child that is torn apart and uh, it begins fairly early on there's a scene of a child being slowly whisked away from their life and not to live but to be killed by our villains but i find it oddly comforting to watch it because it is it envelops you in its world in a way that i think very few directors can successfully pull off and so it's flanagan is at his best for me i think dr sleep is a very excellent film probably my favorite film of mike flanagan's and it's just a testament to his power that he manages to bridge the Shining film and the Shining novel while also adapting the original novel, Doctor Sleep, and makes it feel like such a breeze despite that long a runtime. But my favourite Mike Flanagan project overall would have to be The Haunting of Hill House, which I thought was just a beautiful tale of this family trying to come to grips with with what they experienced in their past and how the ghost which they may or may not have seen has really left a lingering mark and affected them all since they were kids and how much it's changed them as they grew into adulthood and it is chilling there is one I think, Vincent, you'll know the moment, which is just one of the most heartbreaking, soul-destroying things I have seen on TV in a while. And I think it's just a beautiful tale which really earns its ending. And I thought it was just beautiful. Well, I'm with you, James. Yeah, The Haunting of Hill House is uh, my my personal favourite Flanagan property. Um, I've only watched it all the way through once um, and I'm ready to give it another watch preferably in the dark alone <laughs> with the lights off um, yeah that's uh, I think I think I do know the scene you're referring to um, James involving falling through time as it were yeah yeah you got it oh yeah Okay, um, and then there is one point in it which is one of the best jump scares I think I've ever seen. I just watched earlier today that little scene. Um, you know, you put, you know the one I, I mean, James, in the car. Um, and even though I knew it was coming, and I just watched this little better. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think um, 
what I really like about Flanagan is that whatever medium he's working with, his ability to change his scope and scale happens. So if we take something like Harsh or Gerald's Game, they're both Netflix films. So his awareness that they'll be watched on a smaller screen feeds into the kind of films that they are. They're, they're uh, reduced in focus. They are single location films and they work because of that awareness. But then he expands out with something like the Haunting of Hill House, which is again being watched on a smaller screen, but he understands that in a Netflix show, he has 10 hours to tell this story. And so with the bits that I saw, it was a really interesting story. I just, I was just far too scared throughout and then bring it all the way to Dr. Sleep. That is this big expansive story that is going to be seen on the big screen. So he shoots in a way that at times is almost cosmic. And so, yeah, that's one thing I really admire about Flanagan is that he's probably one of the few directors who understands the landscape of film release is more than anyone else in that he'll make the film for whatever he understands it will be watched in. So if it's going to be watched in cinema, he makes these expansive films. If it's going to be a Netflix original, he's perfectly capable of reducing his scope down to what works for a Netflix film. Absolutely. And is able to, um, you know, we've meant, we've all, I think we all agree that a lot of his work's pretty scary, but it's also often very emotional. Um, I found, you know, The Haunting of Bly Manor had me in tears. I will say um, The Haunting of Hill House and The Haunting of Bly Manor, as pointed out, Hush and Gerald's Game are all available on Netflix. Um, Doctor Sleep is currently available on Now. Um, but hey, there's uh, always way. But um, if you haven't checked out much of Flanagan's work, um, I really do um, highly recommend it. If you want to see a maestro of modern horror, Mike's your man. Now I want you two to get good rest. What if I have a bad dream? Well, I'm sure we can handle any dream you have. What if I dream that you sent us away into the dark and me got hurt? Really hurt. And we're going to be doing these uh, every couple of months. Maybe not every episode, but most episodes we're going to do a deep dive into a director or a genre or some area of horror that we think really needs to be talked about. And so look out for these in future episodes. And we're going to cap things off with uh, a tree of recommendations. So we've each taken on one of the things to recommend, uh, something old, something new, and something not a movie. So I'll kick things off with my something old. And there is a film that for many years now has been barely available to British fans. To us, people in the UK, it just didn't really get much for distribution. But it is one of the great ghost films of the last 15, 20 years. It is, of course, Lake Mungo. And Lake Mungo is a wrenchingly sad powerful horror film we talked about um flanagan's ability to make these films make works that are devastating because the haunting of hill house devastates elements of doctor's sleep devastate he has that skill and lake mungo is one of those films and i've now watched it twice i actually swore i'd never watch it again the first time i watched it because it's so devastating and both times i was basically in tears by the end and it ends on a profoundly sad note and it's this incredible exploration of grief it's about this family who deal with the loss of uh one of of their daughter or sister in sometimes unhealthy ways and it's this strange mystery box of a film and it's by joel anderson who wrote and directed it and he basically disappeared after making this film he didn't make much money it didn't get much attention at the time but it's just gained this reputation over the years 
and it can now be found on Shudder. And also Second Sight have brought out a wonderful Blu-ray of this that I'm going to purchase soon. But yeah, now is the time to find Lake Mungo because if there is a horror film that horror fans talk about as the one modern horror that you've got to seek out, it's probably going to be Lake Mungo. And it won't be for everyone. It's not for everyone. It is at times a challenging watch, but yeah, Lake Mungo is my uh, something old for this month. Have have you seen it? Yes, I have. Um, I uh, not that long ago, actually. I um, you know, I heard it recommended somewhere. Probably the evolution of horror. <laughs> Hi, Mike. <laughs> and it um, was yeah, it was a film I went in actually knowing nothing about it. Um, and uh, at that time, it was on YouTube. I don't, I'm not sure if it's still there. Um, but uh, not knowing anything about it, there were points where I was like, "Wait, is is this? What? Hang on." And then actually, you know, sport it myself by looking things up. Like, oh, okay. And then that sort of <laughs> adjusted my um, my viewing experience, but it didn't in any way hinder that experience. It was, yeah, it's spellbinding. What about you, James? I've actually not seen it. It is one that I hear so much about, and it's thankfully a film I've managed to not get spoiled for myself. That you often get those ones you hear so much about and you know everything by the time you get to watch it i just know from what you guys have said essentially and now that it's on shut i really have no reason to not check it out yeah i i will say that i've watched a lot of horrors since the start of the pandemic and this is one of them and it's one of two or three that have basically stayed with me every single day since this and martyrs and maybe audition but I mean, Martin's an audition are for different reasons, but this has stayed with me and it probably has the level of emotional impact on me that the orphanage had. Basically, ghost stories really fucked me up. <laughs> oh, I was expecting you to say Trolls World Tour among those. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, that, that's another film that's haunted me. Yeah, where's the love for the trolls? Uh, Vincent, you're going to take on the something new this month, aren't you? Yes, just to do a complete 180, I'm going to recommend <laughs> Freaky, which um, I would describe as vice versa meets Scream in a gleefully self-aware, witty, progressive, bloody and bloody enjoyable comedy horror. Now, Freaky is out in cinemas, remember those, right now, and... The synopsis is that a masked serial killer and a high school student swap bodies due to a magical dagger. As you do. Now, it's a film that is gleefully self-aware without being overtly meta. It's got like nods to previous slashes, but the right balance of humour and knowingness so it never feels smug. Um, the serial killer and later on the inhabited by the, body, by the mind of a high school student is played by Vince Vaughan. Now, he's an established comedy actor, and it's a real hoot um, seeing him play a teenage, teenage girl. It uh, highlights his physical comedy skills. Um, and I think, you know, I know this is going to sound extreme, it, we might, it might actually forgive his involvement in the remake of Psycho. <laughs> might just, you know, okay, Vince, it's been 20-odd years, we forgive you. Um, the rest of the cast are really game as well. Um, Catherine uh, Newton, who plays um, the girl version, who also, of course, has to play two characters, does a really great job. Um, and I think it's also particularly interesting to note the type of people who are killed in the film, because it's joyously enjoyable. 
Um, toxic masculinity fares pretty badly here, and I'm always happy to see that. Yeah, um, one of the best. Uh, it features one of the best put downs um, to an entitled um, jock as the well, who he thinks is a is a girl. Um, she says to him, "Your touch makes my pussy as dry as sandpaper." <laughs> <laughs> That's withering. And uh, three such jocks, I uh, will say, meet suitably nasty ends. <laughs> and also, notions of gender fluidity are used to intelligent effect. I think Freaky is a woke film in the best sense of the word, because it's aware of conventions and problematic ideas, and it uses these to comedic and dramatic effect. Like, look out for references to a teenage girl being a fucking piece it should be creepy and icky, but not here. But all you know, I'm not saying this is a serious um, political film. You can make that reading of it, but ultimate. But it is also a really enjoyable horror comedy. It ticks multiple boxes and it offers glorious fun for all concerned. So if you're not heading out to see Freaky right now, what the fuck's your problem? <laughs> you guys seen it? Yeah, I had it's some. It's probably the most fun I've had of a film since cinemas being back open. I uproariously enjoyed this film. It's very funny. Vince Vaughn is is great in it. But then I mean, I've seen Brawl in Cell Block ninety nine, which he's also great in that, and he spends the film stomping people's heads. But it is of the two slashery like films that were released over here last week. It is the one that most lingered with me, and I had the most fun with. It was. Yeah, Freaky is great. I actually haven't seen it yet. And basically, what the fuck my problem is, is that I decided to check out the hitman's wife's bodyguard instead. And... <laughs> Whoops. Yeah, I made a bad mistake Ooh. on that part. But it's still in cinemas, <laughs> so I still have time, thankfully. I have a brief question for you two, which is with this and Fear Street and sort of Candyman and Halloween and various other uh, famous horror slasher properties coming back. Do you think we're going to get a slasher boom? Do you think that's going to happen? Or do you think it's just uh, not this time? Well, it's interesting. I wouldn't until... I wouldn't necessarily think of Candyman as a slasher, although I can certainly see why it fits into that category. I suppose it's possible, but it would have to be... Oh, okay. So the simple answer is no. I don't think we'll get another slasher boom. But if we do, we only will if the if it comes from particularly knowing, I think, filmmakers, um, those who understand the genre, who are able to use it innovatively. Um, I mean, you mentioned Halloween being a you know continuation of that. Um, franchise but also updating it i was delighted with 2018's halloween and i mean the halloween kills could well do more of the same but at the same time it's also got to do something different uh, i think so if i don't think there'll be a slasher boom because i don't have enough (laughs) faith in um, the creative talent to actually get the balance of what would be needed to create that boom but if we do get it, I will be very happy to see it. <laughs> um, I think horror is quite can be quite cyclical. 
So trends come and go, and maybe when something's profitable enough, it can rise again. And like when Twilight suddenly took off, and then there were vampires everywhere. Or when The Walking Dead took off, and zombies were everywhere. And could slashes come back? Not as they were before, not as the previous boom. Like, we're definitely not going to get The Burning again, or the original Friday the 13th. But I think Vincent's right that um, the right kind of filmmakers who we're, who are knowing about what fans love and what needs updating, I think, are going to come in and um, do the right thing to possibly possibly make it all work maybe another boom who knows i think eventually and you never know we we got scream coming out next year that could be the perfect choice part the perfect time to show why uh, why slashes may work today in a different form i guess time will tell but i think it's coming eventually well you're certainly not wrong about the cyclical thing so yes um Horror, like most genres, kind of comes and goes and then it comes back again. So, yeah, we shall see. One thing to be said of both Freaky and Fear Street is that they're both remarkably violent. Uh, both both have exceptional kills in them. Oh, yeah. when I, The first four set of kills in uh, Freaky had me going, oh, nice, yeah, creative. <laughs> you know, because that's, that's the kind of sick puppies we are. We want to see some, you know, <laughs> people being killed in creative ways and there is one kill in fear street which is the best thing since sliced bread (laughs) why do i feel i'm yet to see fear street maybe i'll manage it this weekend but why do i feel that may be somewhat literal (laughs) (laughs) you'll see excellent james what is your recommendation this well i month uh, this month well i have the something which is not a movie and I've gone for a comic book series entitled The Immortal Hulk. And written by Al Ewing, it takes place um, sometime after some one of Marvel's typical events killed off the Hulk for some convoluted reason. But Bruce Banner has since risen again. And what this comic does is it brings Hulk back to his original roots as a Jekyll and Hyde parallel who comes out during the night time and is a bit more savage. And I think this is a really fascinating run because it seamlessly weaves this haunting mythology into this character's history. And it what delivers is a tale which has shades of EC Comics and John Carpenter's The Thing. And it's brought alive with this fantastic art style, which really captures the gruesome nature of what's happening. It's... Um, if you think comics are for kids, this will show you no, no. This is seriously one of my favourite runs I've read in a while. I was burnt out with Marvel after some time, and this has really encouraged me to go back and give some more of their stuff a chance. And I really... It's coming to an end, and I'm going to be sad to see it go, but what we've had so far is phenomenal, and I think people are going to look back on it really fondly. Um, have either of you given this a read? I have not, no. It's uh, not something I'm familiar with. But based on what you've said, is this the kind of comic book that if you did give it, if some 
ignorant parent did give it to their child, say, oh, here's a comic book about the green bloke you find fun, um, they'd be seriously traumatised? I think so. Like, for example, the opening issue, it has a bank station robbery, which ends with Bruce Banner, a couple of innocent civilians, including a child getting unfortunately killed. And the Hulk rises up to find what essentially a gang of drug runners. And he it's not like typical splash pages, Hulk's doing heroic stuff. He's lurking in the shadows. He is really bringing the pain to these, well, they're drug runners, but they're people. And this jade giant is leaving them broken, so broken. And yeah, I can't see a kid reading it and not being a bit freaked out. Uh, I've not read this, but my Marvel question is, have you watched episode five of Loki yet? Of course. Yes. Wasn't it a lot of fun? Oh, yes. <laughs> Speaking of green things. <laughs> Alligator Loki is now my Patronus. Ah, yeah. Why not? <laughs> hey. Jesus! Easy. Easy, easy. It's okay. It's okay. Look, I know I look like the butcher, but it's Melly. This is going to sound really strange. Booker? Booker, look at me. He's crazy. Okay, Booker, can you look at me, please? Please? Booker, please, can you look at me just for a second? Okay, so last night, our consciousness or our spirit, whatever you want to call it, okay, it traded places. You're all going to jail for this. You too, Booker, unless you help me. Booker! Try up, bitch. Booker, help! Booker! Will you shut up? <laughs> so those are our recommendations for this month. You've got uh, a heartbreaking movie, one that you'll have fun with, and a comic book you should read. And we'll have more recommendations next month. And all that's left for us to do is to say where you can find us. So, Vincent, where can people find you? Well, you can find me in the at Hill House, where darkness is held within. Walls stand upright and bricks meet neatly. And silence lies steadily, and whatever walks there walks alone. Find it at Dr. Game on Twitter and Instagram. And you can also visit... Vincent's Views, which is vincentmgain.wordpress.com for my reviews and commentary, and also my reviews on the Critical Movie Critics website. And as for me, if you want to find me, I'm lurking behind the bins, commandeering my raccoon army towards dinner. Throw a sandwich down there once in a while. Wouldn't kill you. But if you want to follow me in a non-creepy way, I'm on Twitter and Letterboxd at RoddersJ04. That's two Ds. And for my reviews, articles, podcast appearances, whatever I do, check out thereviewingrodders.co.uk and I hope to see you there. And as for me, you'll find me wallowing in the 90s because that's what I'm covering on my podcast, not just for kids. Why, this week I watched Super Mario Brothers, the movie, and it's like nothing I've ever seen before. Ooh. So that'll be... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, so on Not Just For Kids, we're covering the 90s. We're wallowing in all kinds of amazing films. And next up, I've actually got Vincent here talking to me about Titanic. And it was quite a chat. So yes, yeah, so you'll find me there. You'll find me on Twitter at Russ Loves Movies. That's where I post, uh, you know, what I'm watching, what I've written, any podcast appearances. Yeah. So come follow me. Come listen to my podcast. It is a lot of fun. We've just talked about Mouse Hunt and Stuart Little. And I hate Stuart Little, so yeah. <laughs>
And all it's left for us to do is say goodbye. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back next month. Stay safe in these odd times. <laughs> and watch and watch stuff. Watch all the horror, all the sci-fi, all the genre, all the sweet rom-coms that come out. Just watch stuff, play stuff, read stuff, and have fun. Watch your neighbours. <laughs>